forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Good morning and welcome to Christ Central. My name is Owen. I get to serve as one of the pastors here. If you're joining us for the first time today, welcome to our church. We're so glad that you're here. Uh, if today is the first time in a long time, welcome back. We're so glad you're back at home. Uh, we're in a sermon series this fall through the book of Galatians, and we're calling this series Getting the Gospel Right. You see, it's very easy for churches and for Christians to be confused about the gospel and to have distorted understandings about the gospel. So the goal of our study through the book of Galatians is to get the truth of the gospel right. And the reason why that's so important is because our spiritual freedom depends on it. You see, it's only when we get the truth of the gospel right, and it's only when we walk in line or in step with the truth of the gospel, that we not only honor Jesus for what he has done for us and for our salvation, but we also experience that spiritual freedom for which Jesus bled and died and rose again. And it's in that freedom, and only in that freedom, that we will get to bear the beautiful fruit of the Spirit in our lives for the good of our neighbors, for the joy of our hearts, all to the glory of our great God. So the title of today's sermon is The Truth of the Gospel, colon, Justification by Faith Alone. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Galatians, chapter 2, and we're going to read from verse 11 to 21, and we're about to read about the time, a very tense time, when the Apostle Paul publicly opposed and rebuked the Apostle Peter, because the truth of the gospel was at stake. And we're also going to read verse 16, which many Bible commentators believe is the key verse, the most important verse that we're going to find in the book of Galatians. And it is in this verse that Paul will clearly articulate the, the great doctrine that we now call justification by faith alone. So, people of God, would you please uh, give careful attention to the reading of God's word. But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray, led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God 
who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Uh, My sermon outline has two points, simply. First, uh, Peter's distortion of the truth of the gospel, and then Paul's clarification of the truth of the gospel. Start with Peter's distortion of the gospel. Now, in the first half of chapter 2, which we looked at three Sundays ago, we read about the time when Paul went to Jerusalem, and he met with Peter... And they discussed the gospel that they were preaching, and they stood together as one for the truth of the gospel. Peter extended to Paul the right hand of fellowship. It was a glorious day. The two most prominent apostles standing together in unity for the truth of the gospel. But sometime later, Peter visited Antioch, and at that time, Paul had to oppose Peter to his face. At that time, Paul did not stand with Peter, but rather he stood against Peter and publicly rebuked him. As you can imagine, it was a very tense and awkward time as the two most prominent apostles stood in conflict against one another. Why? What happened? Well, what happened was that the apostle Peter had distorted the truth of the gospel with his conduct because his conduct was not in step with, it was not in line with the truth of the gospel. So what did Peter do that was so terrible? Simply, Peter stopped eating with Gentile Christians. Now, you might not think that's a big deal, but let me tell you why that's such a big deal. You see, as a Jew, uh, Peter used to avoid unclean Gentiles altogether, let alone eat with them. As a good Jew, Peter never associated with those dirty, unclean Gentiles. But now, as a Christian and as an apostle of Jesus Christ, Peter understood the gospel. He believed that all people, both Jews and Gentiles, were saved and were made clean through their faith in Jesus Christ, apart from obeying the law of Moses. Peter even got a special vision from God to drive this point home. And you can read about it in the book of Acts chapter 10, when we read about the conversion and the cleansing of Cornelius, a Gentile. So in light of the gospel... Peter changed his ways, and he began to welcome fellowship with Gentile Christians, and he regularly enjoyed table fellowship with his Gentile Christian brothers and sisters in the city of Antioch, which was a Gentile city, and which also had a very large and significant Gentile church. But one day, some Judaizers came from Jerusalem, and they were preaching their usual message They preached and they taught that faith in Jesus was not enough to save and to cleanse you. You also had to get circumcised. You also had to obey the law of Moses if you wanted to be saved, if you wanted to be clean and acceptable to God. And they also thought that it was inappropriate for circumcised Jewish Christians to eat together with uncircumcised Gentile Christians. And so, out of fear of these Judaizers, or what Paul calls the circumcision party, Peter acted like a coward. And he withdrew from the Gentile Christians, and he stopped eating with them as if they were still unclean. You see, what Peter did was not just rude or mean, 
it was hypocritical, according to verse 13, because Peter's conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. You see, Peter's hypocritical conduct had two devastating consequences. First, his hypocritical conduct distorted the truth of the gospel. You have to understand, Peter's understanding of the gospel had not changed. Peter believed that everyone... Jews and Gentiles were saved and made clean through their faith in Jesus Christ and that Gentiles did not have to get circumcised. They did not have to obey the law of Moses in order to be saved or to be made clean. Remember, Peter publicly affirmed that faith in Jesus was sufficient for salvation. That's why he and Paul stood together in unity and victory in Jerusalem. Peter's beliefs about the gospel were right and sound. So Peter's beliefs had not changed, but his behavior did. And his behavior now contradicted his beliefs. You see, even though Peter believed that Gentile Christians were saved and were made clean in Christ, but his actions said otherwise. And he began to treat the Gentile Christians as if they were still unclean, even though he knew that they were clean in Christ. And so his conduct was hypocritical. And his conduct communicated a lie that Gentile Christians were still unclean and that faith in Jesus was not enough to make them clean. And so by his cowardly conduct, Peter had distorted and perverted the truth of the gospel. John Stott, the famous English Bible scholar and commentator, said this, The same Peter who had denied his Lord for fear of a maidservant now denied him again. For fear of the circumcision party. He still believed the gospel, but he failed to practice it. His conduct did not square with it. He virtually contradicted it by his action because he lacked the courage of his convictions. So second, Peter's hypocritical conduct harmed Gentile Christians. I want you to think about the, the hurtful impact uh, on the Gentile Christians when Peter withdrew from, uh, withdrew from them and stopped eating with them. What did Peter's actions communicate to them? How did it make the Gentile Christians feel? Did they feel unworthy of fellowship with Jewish Christians? Did they feel somehow that they were second class to Jewish Christians? Did they somehow feel that they were not as clean as Jewish Christians? They must have wondered, what's wrong with us when the Apostle Peter, the great Apostle Peter, is no longer fellowshipping with us. He's no longer eating with us. He no longer wants to spend time with us. What's wrong with us? Are, are we still unclean? Are the Judaizers right? Do we need to get circumcised? Do we need to start obeying the law of Moses for us to be truly clean? Will that then make Peter fellowship with us again? Peter's hypocritical conduct tempted the Gentile Christians to believe an anti-gospel lie. That faith in Jesus Christ was not enough to save them. It was not enough to make them clean and acceptable to God. That they still needed to be circumcised. That they still needed to obey the law of Moses if they wanted to be truly saved and truly clean before God. And that's why Paul had to oppose Peter to his face publicly. Because Peter, by his public actions, had distorted the truth of the gospel. Peter, by his public conduct, had communicated that faith in Jesus was not enough to save you and to make you clean if you were a Gentile. 
So out of faithful devotion to the gospel and out of love for his Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ, Peter, Paul rebuked Peter to his face because Peter's behavior contradicted his beliefs. Because Peter's conduct was not in step. It was not in line with the truth of the gospel. The thing is, the Apostle Peter was not the first nor the last Christian whose behavior would be inconsistent with his beliefs and whose conduct would distort the truth of the gospel. You see, the truth is, all of us, all Christians, distort the gospel whenever our conduct is not in step with the truth of the gospel. Now, historically in America, white Christians grossly distorted and perverted the truth of the gospel when they viewed and mistreated black Christians as inferior and practiced and enforced segregation. Their racist and hateful conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Now, in more personal and mundane ways, we distort the truth of the gospel with our behavior and our conduct, don't we? Let me just give you one very common example that I see happening in my life and probably in yours. You know, as Christians, we believe that Jesus is the Lord. We believe that he is sovereign over the world and that he's sovereign over our lives. We believe that the Lord Jesus will cause all things to work together for our good. We believe that the Lord Jesus is trustworthy because we believe that he's good, wise, loving, and sovereign. We believe these things as Christians, don't we? These are gospel truths. And yet, we distort and contradict this gospel truth whenever we get anxious, worry, angry, or even panic when things don't go our way. You see, though we say we believe one thing, and we do, but by our conduct, we communicate the exact opposite, don't we? By our conduct, we communicate that King Jesus really is not that trustworthy. By our conduct, we distort the truth of the gospel because our conduct is not in step with, it is not in line with the truth of the gospel. And that's why you and I, as Christians, we need to be repenting continually. Uh, Martin Luther said that the Christian life is a life of ongoing and continual repentance. You see, whenever we realize that something in our thinking, our attitude, or our conduct is not in step with the truth of the gospel, it is at that moment the Holy Spirit is calling us to repent as we seek to, to bring our thinking, our attitude, and our conduct to be in line with the gospel. You see, the Christian life is really uh, one long, continual alignment process uh, with the gospel, where we align, where we align our, our whole selves every day. We realign our beliefs, our thoughts, our emotions, our words, and our actions to be in line with the truth of the gospel. And we realign with the truth of the gospel by repenting of anything and everything that is in us that is not in line or in step with the truth of the gospel. Now, that's just another way of understanding progressive sanctification. What is progressive sanctification? It's when the Holy Spirit works in us progressively to bring our whole selves, our heads, our hearts, and our hands to, to, to be more and more in line with the truth of the gospel. That's what progressive sanctification is where your thoughts, your beliefs, your emotions, your feelings, your words, and your actions are brought more and more in line with the gospel. 
So first, we saw how Peter's conduct distorted the truth of the gospel. Next, let's look at Paul's clarification of the truth of the gospel. Now, Bible commentators believe that verses 15 to 21, which we read today, uh, is the most important section in the book of Galatians. And the most important word in the book of Galatians makes its first appearance in our text today. Now, this word that we're going to get to is central to the message of Galatians. It's central to Paul's gospel, and it's central to the entire Christian faith. And that very important word is justified, justification. In these verses, Paul teaches the great doctrine that we call justification by faith alone. So according to Paul, this is the truth of the gospel. That justification is by faith alone. That all sinners, whether Jews or Gentiles, are justified. They're saved. They're made clean. They're accepted by God through faith in Jesus Christ and not from doing the works of the law. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said this about justification by faith alone. He said... This is the truth of the gospel. It is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consists. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continually. I love that. Martin Luther says we need to beat this doctrine into our heads continually. Do you know why? Because it's so easy for us to forget this doctrine. And it's so easy for us to live as if justification were by works. The great existential question that the truth of the gospel seeks to answer is this. How can I, a sinner, be justified by a holy God? There are two things that we know for certain from both scripture and from personal experience. The first thing that we know for certain is that God is holy. And the second thing that we know for certain is that we are not. We are sinful, broken, depraved people. As sinners, we are under the judgment of a holy God. We're banished from his holy presence. And we're alienated from the God from whom we were created to have a relationship with. And if that's true, can there be a question more important in the world than this? How can I get right with God? How can I have a relationship with the God for whom I was created? There is no more important question that you and I could ever ponder in this life. If there really is a God, and if he really is holy, and if I'm really sinful, how can I have a relationship with him? That is the question that the truth of the gospel seeks to answer. So what does justification mean? Let's explain, uh, let's define our terms. Justification is a legal term, and it means the exact opposite of condemnation. To condemn is to declare somebody guilty. So the opposite of that, to justify, is to declare someone not guilty, to, to, to declare someone innocent and righteous. And in the Bible, justification ref, uh, refers to God's gracious act by which he puts a sinner right with himself, not only pardoning or acquitting him, but accepting him and treating him as righteous. So how does this justification happen? 
where first Paul taught how justification does not happen. Verse 16, again, let's go there. The most important verse in, our, in the book of Galatians, uh, Paul said that a person is not justified by works of the law. Now, the law refers to the sum total of all of God's commandments found in the law of Moses, and works of the law refer to acts done in obedience to the law. So that's what works of the law are, all of your attempts to obey the law of God. Those are the works of the law. What the Judaizers, the false teachers, were teaching was that justification was by works of the law. Now, they taught that you had to not only believe that Jesus was the Messiah that the Old Testament promised, but you also had to do the works of the law. You had to obey the law of Moses. Not only the Ten Commandments, but you had to obey the commandment to get circumcised and to eat kosher and all of the laws. They, they, thought, they, taught, they taught that faith in Jesus was essential but not sufficient. And so in order to be justified, in order to be saved, and to be made clean and acceptable before God, you must both believe in Jesus and do works of the law. But Paul refutes that in verse 16. Again, the most important verse that we're going to find in all of Galatians, where he says, by works of the law, no one will be justified. Nobody ever has been Nobody ever will be justified by the works of the law because nobody has ever kept the law of God perfectly in thought, word, and deed. A perfect and continual obedience to the law of God is impossible for sinners. Now, we may keep some of the law's requirements externally, but no one except Jesus Christ has ever kept the law perfectly and continuously in thought, word, and deed. And if we honestly examine our lives and our hearts, then we can all confess that all of us have broken all of God's laws. Jesus said that even if you have murderous and hateful thoughts, you're a murderer. If you have lustful thoughts, you're an adulterer. Every single one of us here, we know that we have not loved God with all of our heart, mind, and soul. We know that we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We all know that. There's not a day that goes by when we don't sin in thought, word, or deed. Every one of us. And that's why Paul says that by works of the law shall no one be justified. So how then are we justified? Again, verse 16, such an important verse. Paul said that we're justified by faith in Jesus Christ and not by works of the law. The gospel says that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to the world to live and to die for our salvation. In his life, Jesus obeyed the law of God perfectly, something that you and I could never do, but he did. And he earned a perfect righteousness with his perfect life of obedience to the law. And in his death, Jesus suffered for our sins, for our disobedience to the law. On the cross, Jesus received the penalty that we deserved for our sins, which was death and the holy wrath of God. As our substitute, Jesus received everything that you and I, that we deserved for our sins. You see, when we believe in Jesus Christ, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, two things happen, which we call the great exchange of the gospel. First, our sins 
are imputed or credited or given to Jesus. And second, Jesus' perfect righteousness is imputed or given or credited to us. In other words, we give Jesus our sins and he gives us his righteousness. It's a great exchange for us, right? We, we give away our sins and we get righteousness in return, but it's a terrible exchange for Jesus. He gives his righteousness and he gets our sins in return. But that's the great exchange of the gospel, isn't it? And because Jesus took our sins upon himself, he died in our place as our substitute. And because Jesus died on the cross for us, we are now forgiven of all of our sins. Let me say this, not some of our sins, not most of our sins, but all of our sins. Completely forgiven through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. You see, our sins have been paid in full by Jesus himself. And we no longer fear the condemnation of God. Do you know why? Not because there is no condemnation. There is condemnation. But that condemnation was given to another. That condemnation was pronounced upon another. Not upon us, but upon Jesus as he died and suffered in our place on the cross. But Jesus did not just take our sins away from us. He also gave us his perfect righteousness. The righteousness that Jesus earned with his perfect obedience to the law, he now graciously gives to us as a free gift. And now, because we have the righteousness of Christ, God justifies us. Do you know what that means? God views you as righteous. God declares you to be righteous. God accepts you as righteous. God treats you as righteous. That is justification. And it happens through believing in Jesus Christ, not from obeying the law of God. Justification happens as we confess our sins and our helplessness and as we look to Jesus Christ to be our Savior. To believe in Jesus is not merely for us to intellectually assent to the biblical fact that Jesus is the Son of God. To believe in Jesus in a saving way means that you run to Jesus. You fall at the feet of Jesus. And you cry out to Jesus to save you, not because you deserve to be saved, but because Jesus is so merciful, so gracious, and so full of love that he delights to save sinners like you and like me. You see, we confess that we deserve nothing, but we ask for everything because we believe this astounding gospel, this amazing gospel that tells us that Jesus loves and saves undeserving sinners like you and like me. So what? What difference should all of this make in our lives? A lot, actually. And let me tease out some of the most important implications here. You know, the truth of the gospel or the doctrine of justification by faith alone, frankly, is easy to understand but it's easier to forget, and it's hard to believe. Let me say that again. The doctrine of justification by faith alone is easy to understand, but so hard to believe. Because in our flesh, we gravitate toward a distorted version of justification by works. That's what our flesh wants to do. Our flesh resists the grace of God. Our flesh wants in some way to earn our salvation. 
Let me prove it to you. You know, when you and I, when we sin, when we say and do something we regret, some, something sinful, shameful, something that we're embarrassed by and hate ourselves for, isn't it so easy for us to feel like God doesn't love us anymore? For us to feel that God is disappointed with us. For us to feel that God is somehow withdrawn from us. And when, when we blow it and when we mess up big time, when we commit that shameful sin that we promised never to commit again, yet we did it again, isn't it so easy to feel like God condemns us and for us to feel like God wants nothing to do with us anymore? Do you feel that way sometimes? I know I do. In fact, I feel that way after every time I sin. But when we feel that way, and when we believe our feelings, we're believing something that is distorted and anti-gospel. You see, when we believe our feelings, we're believing that God's love, God's acceptance, and God's delight over us depends on our conduct. It depends on our behavior. What do our feelings tell us? If I'm obeying God, if I'm being good, of course God loves me. But if I'm sinning, if I'm being bad, there's no way God can love me. That's what our feelings tell us. And what our feelings tell us is not the truth of the gospel. You see, our feelings distort the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel is this. That God justifies, God accepts, and God loves us because we believe and trust in Jesus Christ. Not because we're good, not because we resist sin so well. Today, some of you are here and you feel defeated, depressed, dejected over your seemingly unending sinfulness. And you feel like you've disappointed God. And you feel like God wants nothing to do with you. If that's you today, today I want to remind you of the truth of the gospel. The gospel says that God loves you and accepts you in Jesus, not only on your best days when you're the best version of yourself, but even on your worst days, when you're the worst version of yourself. God, your Father, justifies you, accepts you, and loves you, and welcomes you, not because of what you have done, but because of what Jesus has done for you. You know, we need to believe the gospel every day, but we especially need to believe the gospel on our worst days. That's when we need to believe the truth of the gospel, not our feelings of self-condemnation and self-loathing. So don't believe your feelings of guilt, shame, and regret, your feelings that tell you that God doesn't love you or want you anymore. Rather, believe the amazing truth of the gospel that says that God loves you in Christ even on your worst days, even when the worst version of you came out and it harmed the very people that you love the most. You know, even if your family and your best friends leave you, 
the gospel says that God, your Father, will never leave nor forsake you. And when you see your Father's unconditional love for you in Christ, when you see your Father running toward you with compassion, when you're in your most dirty and ashamed state, the way the Father ran to his lost son when he returned in rags, when you see that kind of mercy, when you see that kind of grace, when you see that kind of love in his eyes for you, that will melt your heart and you'll begin to love your good father who has loved you all along and do you realize he never stopped loving you? Even when you were wandering as a prodigal, when you were rebelling and acting a fool, God still loved you. And today, maybe you've been acting a fool. You've been playing the prodigal son or daughter for years. Do you realize that even in your prodigal, wayward ways, your father has never stopped loving you? Always waiting for you to return home into his embrace. And when you can begin to see that and believe that, that changes everything. Gives you a new heart. Gives you a new life. You know, the gospel says that you don't have to do anything except believe in Jesus to be saved. Do you know what that means? You don't have to attend church to be saved. You don't have to go to worship services to be saved. You don't have to read the Bible to be saved. You don't have to pray to be saved. You don't have to obey the Ten Commandments to be saved. You don't have to serve to be saved. You don't have to love your neighbors to be saved. You don't have to stop sinning to be saved. You don't have to do any of that. All you have to do is call upon the name of the Lord Jesus and believe on him and you will be saved. It's that easy. The gospel demands nothing except faith. But here's the thing. But when you truly believe in Jesus Christ and when who he is and what he has done for you becomes real and beautiful to your heart and when you realize that you you cling to Jesus as your only hope and your only Savior, that changes you. It changes your desires. And you begin to want to gather with God's people to worship the God who loves you. And you begin to want to study God's word, to learn more about this God who loves you. You begin to want to pray to commune with this God who loves you. And you begin to want to obey Jesus and to stop sinning, to honor the one who loves you. And you begin to want to love and serve others because you realize that Jesus has loved and served you so well. You see, all those things that you once viewed as burdensome chores somehow become glorious privileges. And you begin to hunger and to thirst for the satisfying love and presence of Jesus, your Savior. And all of that happens when you put your faith in Jesus Christ and he makes you a new creation. The old things have passed away. All things have become new. He gives you a new life, a new heart, a new hope, and new desires. These new desires for God and for holiness and for heaven that you never knew before, but they're there. And they become alive and they grow. And then you learn to say with the Apostle Paul with full conviction, I have been crucified with Christ. 
It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Dear Christ Central family, my dearest brothers and sisters, let's believe the truth of the gospel today and let's live our lives by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the truth of the gospel that tells us that you accept us and you cleanse us simply through our faith in your son, Jesus Christ. And we don't have to do anything to earn your love. You give it to us freely in Christ. And I pray if there's anyone here today that has not yet put their faith in your son, Jesus Christ, I pray that they would today, that they would know the joy of becoming a new creation, a beloved son and daughter of God. Oh God, I pray that by your spirit, you would make that so for each and every one of us today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Church, would you please rise and join us in responding in worship.